Hi everyone. Welcome to the lounge at the CWE winter break edition. I'm Chanel and I'm joined by my co-host Natalie. Hello. And Tia. Hi. And so while the students are away on break, we're going to take over the podcast and have a little fun. So we're going to start with finding out what we're doing during the break to sustain us, what we're watching, what we're cooking, and what we're listening to. Then we're going to get caught up on all the hot gossip. Our couch conversation today is around musings on motherhood. And then we have an Ask the CWE question submitted by some students. All right, so let's get started. Uh, Natalie, what are you watching? What you cooking? And what are you listening to? Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, I had I was really on like a watching hiatus, but I've started watching some stuff again. I am watching a new Kaylee Cuoco show on HBO called The Flight Attendant. I think it's a mini series, and it's based on a book. Um, she's surprisingly not surprisingly, but I had only ever seen her on that show that I didn't watch, The Big Bang Theory. Um, she plays a flight attendant who's kind of a mess and kind of. Um, has like a flirtation and then a fling with a man on a flight um, to, I think Thailand. And then she wakes up next to him and he has been murdered and she can't remember anything. And so it's, it's a, it's um, like an upbeat, slight comedy, but also mystery suspense, thriller, dramedy kind of a deal. And it's, it's really fun. It's very well done and she's great. And there are a lot of, um, it's it's sort of mostly women characters. Um, you know, there's like a woman assassin and attorneys, and it's, it is one of those movies where you kind of look around. You're like, wait, I, th I think a woman may have directed it. Um, and uh, you know, oh, it's a movie. Not it, a it's show. a show. It's a show. But it, it passes the Bechdel test. Women talk to other women about things that aren't men, uh, and they all have names. So it's it's good. It's really entertaining, and I I would recommend it so far. Um. And what am I cooking? Oh, I'm cooking so much, mostly baking. I'm baking a lot of Southern Italian um, from like my family's region, from Puglia. Uh, a lot of sort of traditional holiday Christmas cookies and pastries. I just made one that was really exciting because my grandmother passed this year. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever made them alone. I only ever like was really allowed to assist her with them. She had this very elaborate thing where my mother could help, I could watch, and then eventually I got to be in a so I've been doing a lot of that, a lot of uh, holiday baking. I think I'm going to attempt an elaborate gingerbread house, like one the kind that you know you end up in tears afterwards because you put put so much work into it and it'll probably collapse. Um, Wait, like you're going to bake all the yes, yeah, yes. I have a friend who gave me like a book with like elaborate architectural plans, and we did one once, and it did involve like somebody really annoyed and sort of standing there holding it up for three hours. So I think I think I'm going to try one of those because I love baking, but I'm not that artistic. We will see. I, I know it's going to be the kind of thing where I just get pissed off, but it's worth doing because what else is there to do? And listening to, you know, I'm listening to holiday music, playing a little bit of holiday music. It was really nice. I found old, um, my partner's uh, mother's old um, like Christmas carol books that she has all of her notes and um, um, like little citations on and um, been playing those. And yeah, that was a whirlwind, but that is what I've been up to. What about you, Tia? Um, 
things have been a little different around here. Um, I've been watching Are You the One on Netflix. Oh, I've seen it. I've seen the queer one. I heard about the queer one. Outrageous. But I looked it up and found out that that's not until like season eight. And I actually started at the beginning. Ah. But I'm still not this type of reality show. But it's been really interesting for them to talk about what's a perfect match. Yeah. And I still don't really know how they came to think people have a perfect match. But um, I've been cooking. I made um, cheeseburger egg rolls the other day. Ooh. That was really fun. It actually tastes like a cheeseburger. Like it's like fusion. <laughs> hmm And then um, I'm about to make some a- some apple cider. Love it. Never made it from scratch before, so this should be interesting. Oh, from scratch. Yeah. Okay. What does that entail? From what I saw from pictures and stuff, I didn't go into full detail. Like it's oranges, nutmeg. Some have cranberries. Um. So yeah, I have no idea, but. It's about it to be on. Me. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I just I really want that. I thought you were like just gonna open in. a jar. That's what I would have done. <laughs> no, you know me. Put it on the stove top. <laughs> I have to go for complicated, you yeah. know. I I do the whole thing. Yeah. I bet you there's a crock pot recipe. Mm. For oh yeah. That is the plan. I I'm, I'm not standing over stove top nowhere trying to do this. Like it's all gonna go in one pot and we're gonna sit simmer it for hours. Um, I'm probably the Scrooge of Christmas music. I'm not the biggest fan to like listen to it all the time when it's this time of the year. Fair enough. But one of my favorite um groups, We Are King, just released a new album. Well, the pre-orders out, and so I'm pre-ordering their new album, Space Oddity. Hmm. What about you, Chanel? Okay, watching all the Christmas movies. Ooh. So I am one of those people that. Really, really loves Thanksgiving, so I do not skip ahead. Um, but on Thanksgiving night, we got it started watching Jingle Jangle um, on Netflix, which is like this all-black um, Christmas musical. Has Forrest Whitaker in it. These two cute little black girls who are what like the the main character. She's going to be a huge star. She's so adorable. But we watched that. That was super fun. And now we just finish. Christmas Chronicles, which is also on Netflix, and it's Kurt Russell as Santa Claus and Goldie Hawn as Miss, Mrs. Claus. And I just love them together because they're one of my favorite couples. But this is the best Santa Claus movie. Like, he's so badass. If you are not a believer, that movie will make you a believer. It is so good. So we watch Christmas Chronicles 1 and Christmas Chronicles 2. We are a family of believers. So it just reignited our you know affirmation around that so that's what we're doing totally in a christmas spirit picking christmas movies to watch you know they've been in the news lately kurt russell no go kurt russell and goldie hahn good or bad it's i mean it's good but it's like people are talking about the fact they've been together for 35 years and not married. Got- mm-hmm. They're like they're like Oprah and Stepman. I was explaining mm-hmm. that to Corey. I don't know if she asked, but <laughs> <laughs> I love that Chanel. I don't know if she asked. <laughs> but you thought she should know. <laughs> right. Yeah. She's like, how old is she? Eight or nine? Is she eight? They're like, and here's what it means to be in a domestic partnership and choose to abdicate the compulsory heterosexual marriage industrial complex <laughs> well because i was like they're together in real life 
And she's like, oh, like they're married. And I'm like, well, it's more of an Oprah Stedman thing. And she's like, who? <laughs> who is <laughs> I love it. Oh, anyway. You know she's going to go to school and tell everybody. She's like, well, actually, they're in a domestic partnership. They have explicitly chosen. She's that kid on the playground, which I love. One time I took her along with a class I was lecturing in on, and they asked me to come speak about like black motherhood. And by the end of the class, she's like, yeah, I don't want to be a mom. <laughs> so <laughs> like I was trying to do this thing where it was like, you know, you can be other things and women should you know, aspire for a lot of things. But it went the other way where she's like, yeah, that just sounds like a lot of work. I'm not in I would never want to be a mother. I, I was like, Wait a anyway. Christmas Chronicles 1 and 2, highly, highly recommend it. It is action-packed. It is the coolest Santa you'll ever see. Um, I loved it. So, and then what what I'm cooking, um, Corey's actually cooking. She's cooking um, red velvet cake. Her and her grandma are usually together during this time of the year, and they bake together. But because of COVID, they can't be. So she's been walking her through the recipes over FaceTime. And when I tell you, I think she, I think she might have her grandma on the red velvet cake. But she used real butter instead Uh-oh. of margarine. <laughs> <laughs> and the girl can bake. She got it. She got it. So I'm hoping she'll make another one soon. And then I'm trying to figure out how to make hot chocolate bombs. Because you can't really find them in the stores right now. So I'm trying to figure figure out a good recipe for that. Because they seem really, really fun. I love it. And listening to, I mean, I'm the opposite of you, Tia. I only listen to holiday music during this time of year. Um, so while trimming the tree, I did one of those, I'm like practicing like what kind of grandma I want to be. And so <laughs> I like to get one of those fancy, fancy trees with like the mesh ribbon and the, you know, the star that's not really a star. Instead, it's a bunch of like sticks. Like it looks like a Pinterest tree. It's turquoise and silver and another shade of blue, periwinkle. So um, listening to holiday music, this today I'm on um, Whitney Houston's The Preacher's Wife soundtrack, listening to that. Um, so I love this time of year. I can go on and on, but I won't. Um, but that's that's what we're doing. All right. I love it. You should give us a picture to share of the um, of the tree you did. That's a Pinterest. My fancy tree. And uh-huh. I just finished before this, before we recorded the podcast, instead of sending emails, I finished doing <laughs> I finished decorating my entryway with a mini tree and snow in a little picture that said, look at, look at, look at Natalie's tree (laughs) and a little picture that said, have yourself a merry little Christmas. I'm all about it. Y'all really do go all out. Not really. (laughs) There's nothing else to look forward to. Exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. This year I'm going all out, Um, you know, just to make it, we're usually, um, you know, visiting family during this time of year. So it's just like something to look forward to, to, to change it up a bit and not be sad. So, all right, next topic. What is the hot gossip? Tell me everything. (laughs) All right. So we're going to move on to our hot gossip and Chanel start us off. Yeah. Chanel start us off. Okay, so I am bringing to the table. All right, it's not, I mean, we took a little break clearly from from the podcast. So this didn't happen this week, but last week, I think, 
this twerk brunch. (laughs) (laughs) So in Dallas, this black restaurant, um, have people are eating lunch brunch and you know there's a dj playing and people started twerking right hands on the wall twerking so the owner of the restaurant gets upset comes out lectures everybody about like this isn't that kind of restaurant you could take that mess over to these other two restaurants (laughs) i don't know <laughs> but don't come up in here and do that. I'm trying to have something for black people in the community to be proud of and to look up to total respectability politics, hot mess. When I was watching it, I was like, is this my daughter's school cafeteria? Cause they stay on silent lunch. They're always on silent lunch. So I was like, silent lunch. <laughs> silent lunch. Cause if they get too loud and rowdy, then they, they get there. There's like red light, green light, yellow light. It's a whole mess. But they get their their lunch, their their ability to speak during lunch <laughs> taken away. <laughs> taken he he away. tried to take it away from the, his brunch. He was like lecturing them like it was a child <laughs> cafeteria about like what they should be doing in his restaurant. Like to the not just like to that table, like excuse me, ma'am, <laughs> but we don't want your twerk. Oh, he like pontificated, like he gave like a whole head. speech. It was like, look, I could get it. Like, look, those people over there eating eggs, Benedict, (laughs) and (laughs) your twerk air is flowing. Could you sit down? Or like, hey, ma'am, these are really expensive couches. (laughs) (laughs) What is the expense of the the price point of the couch have to do with what you... (laughs) I don't know. But my thing is, why do you have a DJ... Playing Meg the Stallion's body, yada yada yada. What do you want me to do to that? What do you want me to? I do? mean, he wants you to this eat eggs Benedict in, in silence to body yada yada. Like you can't have a, you know. And, and so there's like all this conversation, people comparing it to Ruth's Chris, and you know, oh, if y'all went here, first of all, his restaurant is not Ruth's Chris, but you know, if y'all went here, no, if y'all went to these white people's establishments, you wouldn't act like that. Why is there a DJ? Like, I, I don't understand. Music can set the atmosphere. And if that's not what you want people to do, maybe go holler at your DJ. But what restaurant have you been in with a DJ? But you could have said, you know what? Can we just, you know, play a little Maxwell? They getting a little rowdy in here. But it's like drinks flowing. Also, it's COVID. It was also like gross looking. It was COVID and like, no, mm-hmm. like, it was kind of crowded in there. So I'm like, don't try to act like you some kind of right. fancy establishment now. And you should have seen his little cowboy boots. I mean, it was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot going on. But he came rolling out there like boots first. He told them he don't need their money, and if they don't like it, they could get the f out. Like he cursed it. Oh, all while preaching respectability, eh? Isn't that all while preaching respectability? But it also, it's, it's not lost on me. It was like 80% women. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he started talking about like, you know, he tells the men that they need to do blah, blah, blah. But how can he hold them accountable if the ladies aren't respecting themselves? So there's like so many layers like that. Twerking is disrespectful and all of this other stuff. But anyway. And who's to say they're not respecting themselves? Who's to say that? And I don't understand how come after he did that, there was not a mass exodus of like, oh. You don't need my money? Let me get my purse. Let me go. Because that would have been me. I'm sorry. Even if I wasn't the one twerking on the wall. (laughs) Even if I wasn't the one twerking on the wall, I would have just been like, but who is you talking to, though? Yeah, it's just shaming. 
Yeah, it was shaming. It's a mess. I stayed like criticizing respectability politics while having on pearls. <laughs> like, girl, what is you doing? Are you with it or not? I'm not with it, actually. I don't like it. Anyway, who's next? That's what I brought to the table. I'm next. I want to bring up uh, Mario Lopez as Colonel Sanders. It's really serious content. I'm so serious. It's it's a Lifetime movie called A Recipe for Seduction. (laughs) Wow. Um, (laughs) It's a short film, isn't it? It's a short film. I'm calling it a film, Um, too. It's a film. (laughs) It has a trailer and everything. Wow. And apparently he's this new chef for this estate. And he has brought this new recipe to the family. And it seems like he's getting a little too close to people. And there's like some murder mystery kind of thing going on. It's really strange. I had to look and make sure it was not a joke. I thought it was a commercial at first. But is it a joke though? I mean, it's a joke. (laughs) Well, it's an actual film too. Wow. So Okay, my question is. It's ridiculous. It's the most 2020 thing that we've seen. Mm-hmm. It, well, this week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Past day. Yeah. But are you going to watch it? Um, how long no. is it? Tia, you are <laughs> yeah, going to watch, watch it. it. Is he going to be like the romantic lead, like in those Lifetime holiday movies, like the single dad who's like down in his luck and like Colonel Sanders is, you know what I mean? Or is he like the magical old man? Who makes Christmas? No, Colonel Sanders wet and next. No, or is <laughs> no. But he's not an old man. But he has like the little salt and pepper wisp and stuff in his hair. I don't know anything about the actual Colonel Sanders either. But he normally has like a white suit and he has like white hair. Mm. Well, I know. I mean, Mario Mario Lopez seems too handsome to play. He seems very handsome and too brown, but you know. It seems like from the trailer, he gets in the way of what I think the mom wants to happen per probably her daughter. What? And so like there's a person that he, she she wants him her to be with. What's the and- role of the chicken? Where does that feature? <laughs> or is he like a colonel in it? You know what I mean? Is it like he's a chef? Like, oh, he's a chef. chef. So he's gonna make and they they're like in the in the previews they're like chicken man uh, we're gonna i mean there's like drama like uh, the mom i guess is, she wants the girl to marry somebody right. else she's like he has a chicken recipe that will change the world you know <laughs> after the popeye's, <laughs> after the popeye's chicken sandwiches came out uh-huh. there was this comedian roy woods who had this whole series of these chicken sandwich wars with like kfc churches mm. chicken popeye's Hungry chick-fil-a now. And so I think they stole his whole premise. Like, yeah, they stole his whole thing. He was like, we were watching on Twitter the chicken. It would be like little two minute episodes of the chicken sandwich wars. They were real good, lots of drama. And now here we are. Who? Where is this coming on Hallmark or Lifetime? Who's doing this? Lifetime. Beautiful. I mean, they they know they know how to do it. I I think we should do a, <laughs> a, an Instagram live or something where we watch it and the CWE reacts okay. to it. Chanel, uh, Tia yeah. is shaking her head. No, I don't even watch the biopics on Lifetime. Oh, they're all terrible. Yeah. The way that I heard they did Whitney, I would never. Yeah, Analia. Yeah. yeah, they're all bad. 
And I just saw the stills from like the royal family ones that they do. And I I have to look away because it's so embarrassing. (laughs) It's just so, even just. Who greenlit this? Like, what is happening? I don't know. Is it, and and it like, yeah, do they have the blessing of the Kentucky Fried Chicken Corporation? (laughs) I wonder. And his estate or, you know, I don't know. But I mean, if anyone can do it, Mario Lopez can. He's got that wonderful smile. He's not that great either. No, I don't really know much no. other than AC Slater. And you know the Save by the Bell um, series is out now. Oh yeah, and he just looks like a, a a bigger kid. Like they didn't really take his character seriously. But anyway, <laughs> that's for another episode. We're also just this has like come out in the last couple of days that this uh, a white student has been like accused of essentially fetishizing HBCUs. Uh, so on Twitter, I believe she um, was, was expressing her relation at being admitted to Spelman as a transfer, um, but she is a white student and um, used the phrase that she was sort of excited to be surrounded by black girl magic and while also recognizing her privilege as a white student. And there've been, there's been both like a backlash and then also people saying, Oh no, this is like an overreaction. And so I think it's sort of opening up, not opening up because this is a conversation that I think is ongoing, but like should white students attend spaces that were intended to um, that were intended for uh, young, young black people in the United States to be educated and, uh, where there weren't, you know, spaces in, in in white spaces, and I believe she has had to delete her Twitter and her her Instagram, and but but there's a like, I, I mean, I think it's sort of bringing up a lot of conversation around like, you know, is is this a fetishization? Um, what are your intentions if you're choosing to attend a, a you know a space that is intended to be protective? And for not for you, and I don't know. Do y'all see it? Yeah. Well, I think the thing that was lost here was people weren't really upset because a white student was attending an HBCU. That's nothing new. Yeah. It was the way she talked about yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing she said in the caption about announcing it yeah. and the whole black girl magic and things like that. So. Yeah, it's nothing new. And then they get also minority scholarships to go to HBCU. So Ooh. there's no upset there. Yeah, I did wow. hear that. I didn't. I never, you know, fact check it to see if that were true. But I do remember people saying that, like, they get minority scholarships to go. But I agree with you, Tia, that um, the issue, I mean, white students have been at HBCUs since the beginning of time, honestly. Um, but definitely, you know, they, they've joined... Um, the Divine Nine Greek organizations, they've been a part of, you know, attending HBCUs. It, and it and it was less about the fact that she went and more about the fact that she needed this kind of attention mm-hmm. for going. That That is really suspicious. Um, and again, like, think of all the Black girls who are going to Spelman next year. Um they're not going to go viral in the way that this, you know, it's like, and she knows that. And it feels like, you know, something to get pats on the back. But my stance towards white people attending HBCUs has been complicated by folks like Rachel Dolezal, right? Who went to Howard and then later used that to kind of shore up this case 
or whatever, you, whatever we would call it, but shore up her identity as a black woman, like trying to, and I'm doing air quotes, but trying to, to, um, what is it? Come like, um, is it black fishing, whatever. Like, but she, but people believed it more because she went to an HBCU. So the the fact that people take this and do other things with it to, to, you know, put forth an identity that is not theirs, um, that's troubling. But hey, if you're going to come and you're going to really learn, honor, respect Black culture and be an advocate, you know, for anti-racism, like in a real way, and you're not just there to put on the letters and get, you know, kudos and, you know, think that that means that you are anti-racist. I went to Spelman, you know, like that, that's going to mean something. Um. Then, okay, you know, yeah. whatever, you, you know. Yeah, I think there's like a, there's a, there's a, uh, part of part of the reaction too is like this thing that like as white women we want we want to be in you know what I mean we want to be part of we want to be in spaces that like and and not understanding that maybe there are things that aren't for us there may be things that aren't for us there may be spaces that aren't not that HBCUs aren't also for you know can't be for this can't be a space for her but like but just that the the desire to be in a space yeah. to claim and then to have other people know, particularly white people, you know what I mean? Like in this moment I, and the way that social media operates, you're right. It is totally different. I think for like a white student to elect, to attend for, and, 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 and be very intentional and thoughtful and reflective. And it's another to make certain announcements on social media to include what does feel like a fetishization in terms of like, I'm so excited to be, you know, at the center of black girl magic or whatever she said. Um, and not, and not really thinking, thinking about, you know, but why is this about you? And well, and and then also what you just said made me think about, um, Becky from Full House, her yeah. daughter, uh, Olivia Jane, yeah. yeah. oh, yeah. and it'd be on the red, right. on the red table, right. right? Like of all places you go to this forum with three black yeah. women as a way to get your redemption. So there is, I mean, I think people are right to ask the questions. The other questions that I saw people asking though around this, which I thought were interesting is, um, you know, like with, with um, there, there are white deltas, white AKAs, things like that. But like these organizations have been open forever to accepting white women, white men, but not trans women and trans men. And so same with these HBCUs, uh, Spellman's policy has changed, but after, you know, um, the, the years and years upon like allowing white people to attend. And so it's just interesting which identities get to transgress the, you know, the, the thing that the, the school was established, the, the identity that the school was established to serve and which ones are still, you know, not allowed. So now that was an interesting conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I I think I think like the the centering piece is also something that it, like white women we need to reflect upon. Like where like why yeah. why are we always at the center of it? Because I even I even think like to some extent a lot of the ways this social media circulated at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement in the summer, it was a lot of white women are us performing a certain kind of I don't know, make, making it about us and our learning and our reflection and our tears and our uh, final understand, finally understanding and knowing. And, um, and that's something we're thinking about in this moment, I think, that, that this, this example helps, uh, it not helps us, but it, it, it requires that we, we put more thought into that. And like, why is it always about us? All right, let's move on to our couch conversation. 
Okay, so this week's Couch Conversation is uh, entitled Musings on Motherhood. Um, so, you know, motherhood is something that has always been fraught. Uh, and it's, it seems like it's something, this relationship, this role is something that is complicated and at the heart of feminism. And so, you know, being that we all work at a women's center, you know, we've been mothered, maybe we do perform mothering roles, we talk about motherhood uh, with our students, and they come to us with questions about motherhood or their mothers or those that relationship. You know, we wanted to spend a little bit of time today talking about motherhood. And so, I mean, you know, there's so many places where we could start this conversation, but I think when we think about the center and sort of this podcast, that one of the, the best places to start is to think about representations of motherhood, particularly in the media. And so I'm wondering, like, what are what are some of the big, like the mothers that you kind of grew up thinking about, um, maybe on TV and movies and books? And what were they? Were, was there an ideal mother? Was there a villainous mother? And like, who were the mothers on television who, I don't know, shaped who you think maybe in hindsight shape your views on motherhood? I think my first one is um, Felicia Rashad on the Cosby show. Claire Huxtable was like the utmost mother. Like she was a lawyer and she was there for her kids and she was, you know, doing all the family things. And she had sass, she could dress. Like that was the ideal mother to me. What about you, Chanel? I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, I think, I, don't, I mean, it's probably not a Black person that was, you know, coming up in the 80s and 90s that wasn't looking at Claire Huxtable um, as as the ideal mother. But for me, also, there was Roseanne. Oh. And so I know she's like, tis tis now. But back then, like, she brought in, like, an era of, like, um, less perfection. Yeah. So for me, you know... I grew up in Brooklyn. My Brooklyn didn't look anything like the Cosby's Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So it was like a, like a mixing together of Claire Huxtable and Roseanne to kind of you know, see representations of my family and, and what that looked like. But yeah, definitely the class stuff that Roseanne brought up was um, not as a, I don't know if it was like ideal motherhood. Ideal would have been Claire Huxtable, mm -hmm. but just another, I, I felt like it disrupted some of the other um, versions of motherhood that that I was seeing in a way that was uh, refreshing. Yeah, that's that is so true. I, I didn't even think about Roseanne. Yeah, it was just like whatever. Like like that to me like is what you know because maybe some of the other politics would have been a little bit over my head as a kid watching Roseanne. But you're right, there was this like nonchalance and this like this is good enough because she was a working working mother. Her kids were complicated. They weren't like perfect little children. You know what I mean? They moved in with their boyfriends and they left home and they, you know, had attitudes that went unaddressed. And so like, yeah, I, I never, I never really thought about Roseanne as being like a mother I, who shaped you. I saw more of that with Harriet Winslow. Oh. With Family Matters. Oh. See, she didn't, she wasn't, I would say now looking back at Harriet Winslow, I see something different, but she didn't stand out to me on that show. I think, you know, I think Steve Urkel was so ridiculous that, that's all I saw. Like, I, like she was kind of a background character for me in a way that Claire and Roseanne weren't. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. So, 
what you you know i think for me i think a lot about like the absent mother because i'm i was actually racking my brain and other than yeah other than some of the examples you all mentioned i you know i loved like full house as a kid because i wanted to be like stephanie tanner because she did cool jazz dances to motown philly <laughs> and you know, so the, the, her, their mother had died. And so they were raised by these three men. You know, I think about like all of the Disney movies, none of them have mothers, right? They just had evil, wicked stepmothers. And so instead it was just like, you know, it was like this absent mother and um, and then who was like supplanted by a wicked stepmother, right? I mean, none of the mm-hmm. Disney princesses we grew up, the Jasmine, um, the Little Mermaid, we didn't get a mother until either Tiana, yeah. the Princess and the Frog, yeah. or Merida, whichever one of those came what first. Is that about? Is from what Blade. is that about, you think? Why? I mean, I'm sure there are papers written I'm about sure. it. There I'm are, sure there actually. are entire dissertations written about it. But what? why? I, I did a whole class on, um, what is it, children's stories. Mm-hmm. And it's a classic trope yeah. that's goes way beyond the Disney stories and it's like either it's that setup or it's like an orphan. Yeah. And I don't and I don't know where I don't remember where that comes from, but it's definitely a classic story. Absolutely. Line. Absolutely. I just I feel like um there was this loss and and that mother was always the ideal mother. She was a perfect idolized mother who could who but we never saw it. So I, I don't know what it looked like. And and then she was replaced by this woman who came to steal, you know, your father and, I don't know, lock you in a closet and treat you poorly and, and think that, you know, and replace you and, and get rid of you. And so that's that's just so interesting that I grew up with those. Most of us grew up with those kinds of representations because they would have been really early representations, you know, like, like probably before you were watching the Cosby show, you were watching cartoons and – I had a deep appreciation once I got older and I went back to watch um, Good Time, mm-hmm. which was much older yeah. than I was. Yeah. But it showed um, Florida Evans as like that prominent mother figure, especially when the father passed on that show. And some of the structural challenges that she was facing while trying to raise her children in a in an inner city environment where they were being laid off and having to navigate, you know, just a terrible system of inequality and what it mm-hmm. means to be a mother in that time. Florida Evans is a good one. Yeah. I'm thinking about the absence of the mother in the Disney movies too. And, you know, I'd have to think a little bit about like why it may be, but I know that one of the impacts of that though is that we it, it continues to st- to like center the mother as this figure that is supposed to be important. Mm-hmm. So important that it, you know, changes the trajectory of a person's life. And I'm not saying that that's not true, mm-hmm. but it is interesting the way that, you know, the, even the cartoons that we watch continue to center that as the most important relationship mm-hmm. any of us will ever have. And Maybe that, you know, maybe everything we think about the mother has come to us. Like, we're we're socially constructed to think that it's supposed to be that deep. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, so do you, are there any, like, we're, we're, we were talking a lot about the sort of images of mothers we grew up with. Are there any modern day movies or shows about mothers or representations of mothers that you really like because I was thinking about this movie I saw this summer it was on Amazon Prime and it was this Brazilian movie called The Second Mother and it was this really incredible film I highly recommend it about 
this woman who um, is a nanny to a wealthy family and has to leave her daughter um, uh, to care for this family and then send money back to her daughter. And there's like, it's, it's the, the daughter's um, about to enter college and she's studying for these exams and she comes to stay with the mother and this family and see this family who, to her, her mother essentially left her to go mother. Um, and it's a, it's a really beautiful film. And um, I don't know, that kind of speaks to the, the complexity of motherhood and the sacrifices that mothers make, but the pain that it causes and sort of, I don't know. I, I really, really liked it. I thought it was a movie that did mothering justice without, you know, villainizing or, um, you know, um, sanctifying motherhood, motherhood or mothers. I think about good girls and I don't know if y'all have ever seen. Good I girls, haven't, but it's, the, I think that's what it's called. It's the show where three moms plot to rob a store or a bank. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the grocery store. Mm-hmm. But they come together because they have to like pay bills and such. And so one of them works in the grocery store. And so they figure out like, I know this ins and out. We're going to use this money because one of them has a terminally ill daughter and like needs stuff for her medical bills. One of them, like the, the husband's cheating on her and not really doing well in the business that they have. And so they need support. And it's just like... It looks at the things that they had to do, and then it talks about like how they're judged for those things because the husbands all end up finding out what's happening, and then there's just one that has like tension between is this a good thing, is this a bad thing? Even though it saved our family, it's still a wrong act, and I'm I, and it just makes me think about like the tough decisions that some parents, especially mothers, have to go through in order to provide for their families. Yeah. Okay, I know my answer might be a bit ridiculous. Hear it. <laughs> but there's this cartoon that the kids watch called Bluey. And it's little seven-minute episodes. And it's about this family of dogs. But I love the mom and the dad in that. And I think they have, like, such good conversations with their girls. And it's all about play. Like, it's it, it's, it, it's really, like... You know, the kids pretending that the the parents are mountains and climbing on them. But I I think it's a good representation. It shows you, you know, what the parents look like through the kids' eyes. But then there are also all these things that, like, we as parents are picking up on on the show. So I like that. And it's a Disney show. Um, And then y'all know how I feel about Moana. Um, I I love the representation of mostly the grandmother in that. So, you know, my mother passed away when I was 11. So I'm also like really keen on grandmother relationships because of the way my grandmother, um, you know, kind of filled that role for me that, that I was looking for. So I really like Moana's representation of the mom and the grandma and, and Bluey. So I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Just to, to almost completely switch gears, but so we work in a women's center and have, you know, pretty close relationships with our students and do have a lot of advice giving and receiving. And, you know, one of the primary relationships that it seems like our students are navigating, you know, as many of us are navigating is, is, is that relationship with their mother. And, I, you know, there's something about obviously going to college and, and moving away and beginning to, you know, grow into yourself as an adult that is like especially hard. Um, at the same time, I think for a lot of our students, it's like the first time they're they have to start seeing their parent as an adult. Some people do that a lot sooner for, you know, really complicated reasons. Um, 
but I'm, I'm wondering like, you know, what, what is the advice you give, you know, to those students who are like figuring out how to have this adult relationship with their parents because they're navigating all of these things that, you know, um, dating sex, you know, their spring break plans, um, you know, having a controlling mother, a mother who doesn't care at all, you know, all of these things. I don't know. Like what's, do you have, do you have go-to advice? Do you draw on your own experiences? Do you draw on like therapy? I don't know. (laughs) What do you think? Well, I, I don't know. I think that, my relationship with my mother, I had to really work on. Um, For me, I grew up as a very sensitive child. I was very easy to cry and things like that. And it was often questioned and questioned by my mom in certain circumstances. And so it became a lot difficult for me to have tough conversations with her and to see her as someone that I could confide in. And so it caused me to enter into therapy to learn how to communicate with her in that way. And so I did struggle with that once I became an adult and wanted to have conversations with my mother about whatever, because I just shut that down in a way because I didn't think I would be heard or understood. And it wasn't like the teen teenage angst and things like that, but I just couldn't get my point across the way that I wanted to without... I don't know, without tearing up or um, getting flustered because I just couldn't get the words out. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so for me, I think that it takes practice and just recognizing like it's not going to be all the stuff that you see on TV because we've shown, like, we talked about a lot of different examples of what motherhood's supposed to be. And I know for me that um, my mom, some kind of think, sometimes thinks that our mother, sh- mother daughter relationship should be more of the friends thing. And I still can't break away sometimes from the fact that, yes, you are my mother. I would like us to be closer. I'm just not there. Mm-hmm. And and that's okay. Like, it doesn't have to be the way that it's modeled for other people. Yeah. I think it's so hard, too, because it's it's difficult. Like, it's, it's the most ext- – for a lot of people, it's the most extreme example of knowing somebody your whole life and then and – then mm-hmm. c- you know, as I think as a young person, you just think your your mother or the person who who is who parents you the most doesn't know you at all. And I, I feel like they probably think the opposite. Like like I literally raised you. I wiped your butt and I and I I I've seen all of your heartbreak, all of your this and that, even if you weren't that close, you know what I mean? You were still party to it. And so there's something about like growing into yourself that I think is so fraught and so hard because they've always seen you a certain way. And and you, like for me, it's like you think you know me, but you don't, but but you actually do. And you know, like I it's it's really, really hard to grapple with seeing people who raised you, particularly your mother figures, as real humans and who mm-hmm. with real relationships, with real, you know, that 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 is that is so challenging. And it and and I I don't think you can really grow up and have an adult relationship until you grapple with that. But it, it, I yeah, uh, I, I think it's so tough to that that is like a weird tension to me that I think like if if I, you know, if I become a parent, like God, I, I I imagine I'm going to go into it thinking like, oh, I'm not a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. You know, I, ha- I you know, absolutely. Like Chanel, do, do you think that about like your own parenting and 
I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think about the fact that like, it was hard, even even though I didn't get to have an adult relationship with my mother, still coming to terms with the fact that she was a woman with her own needs and her own life and all of those things outside of just being mommy yeah. was something that as an adult, I also had to grapple with. Like, oh, wow, like she really had a whole life out here that wasn't about us. And not even just thinking about like she had a life before us, mm-hmm. like during God. us, she had her own dreams, her own desires, her own friends, her own love, her own heartbreak, like all of those things were happening. Um, And it just was like, you know, because I mean, I'm a child, right? Like a part of being a kid is being self-centered and only seeing your mom and your dad as like what they give to you and not like, well, you know, I I think that that navigation into an adult relationship is about the the relationship being mutual Um, and not just in the way that like my kids make me laugh every day. Like really that like it can be a give and take, like you're, you're learning things in the world that you can then bring back to me and that we can, we can have this exchange. Um, that's a part of that's a part of what happens. I mean, we definitely see it now with COVID. I see a lot of people fussing at their mothers a lot more to go sit down somewhere. You start to see that that kind of sh- shift. But for me, as a parent of young children, eight and four, I'm trying to lay that groundwork now for them to see me as a full human. Um, Well, not completely full. They're still kids. I don't want them weary. But, you know, if I'm upset and I'm crying, I think it's important for them to see that I'm crying, right? Even if I don't, you know, if, if I don't feel like they can understand the full context enough to just say, well, mommy's feelings are hurt right now, or mommy's really upset or because that's something that I didn't, you know, didn't get to see even as my mother was sick, you know, that I didn't see her suffering. Um, and I think that that was because she didn't want to worry us. Like I can see that as a mom, the way that you don't want to worry your children. But I also think about what that meant for the kind of black woman I I am and what I'm trying to undo, right? This idea that you that you should shoulder it all and hold it all in is really unhealthy. And I've been spending so much of my adult life untangling that and figuring out where I learned it. And I think I learned it for the from the women that mothered me, um, watching them just hold so much in. And I don't want my children to see that. So I think, you know, that part of navigating the adult relationship with your with your mother is about first and foremost, like you have to do some work. It's not just that the mom has to um, learn to accept that you're an adult. I think you have to see your mom as an adult who has her own life, her own worries, her own fears, her own desire, like all of those things. So so for me, I'm laying the groundwork early. Trying to, I don't know. We don't know. The thing about being a mom is like, it's all just like experimentation. (laughs) Yeah. We don't really fucking know until, you know, my kids, oh, excuse my mom, until my kids go to therapy, yeah. right? <laughs> like, you know, I won't know for another 20 years if any of this stuff that I'm doing was the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do. So my plan is to be really willing to apologize, you know, contextualize what I was trying to do and understand that like, yeah, this might've been a thing that hurt you and I can, I can hear where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, but Yeah. yeah. That was definitely what I was trying to get at was the fact of my sensitive side. Like I couldn't be that because I was supposed to be so strong Mm. as a black Mm -hmm. girl when I just wanted to be a girl. Yeah. 
I, I also think that there's this thing that happens in college where you, you, you maybe not college, but in growing up, like entering adulthood where you, you do start to, you know, maybe you begin to have some tools to think about, um, you know, those relationships and the way in which they were hard or not ideal or you were harmed by them. Um, but then, and, 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 and I feel like for most, for most people, there is a process of like blaming and then there, then, and, and what comes after that is a realization that like, we're just, we are really hard on the, our primary caregivers and that, 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 that was the whole point. Like not everything can be wrapped up in this relationship. You know, I, and I heard this Zadie Smith quote, um, actually it was like plucked, put in a, in a memoir that I was reading. And Zadie Sith says, um, I'll quote her here, it, it's in the nature of the beast that no one gets out of a family unit whole or with everything they want. The truth is the family is always an event of some violence. It is only years later in that retrospective swirl that you work out who was hurt in what way and how badly. And I... Gosh, I mean, that's like, a, it's a really serious quote. And I think it's something to really, that you, what one really grapples with. But I also think it kind of gets at, at what you're speaking about, Chanel, in terms of like, you, you, perhaps in adulthood, a lot of us realize that we we have more than one mother figure in our lives. You know, some of us, you know, maybe don't have a, a, um, a present mother or, you know, a capital M-O-T-H, whatever, mother. That just spelled moth. But... <laughs> I'm I'm wondering like you know why why are we so hard on mothers and and what happens when we open up um the definition of mothering do do you all actively try to do that do you, do you think about that uh, or spend time thinking about people who have mothered you you know I think I think that conversation has gotten gained more prominence um around like mothers day lately because of social media and the kinds of images and like, and, and ideas that circulate. Like, I think there's, there, there has been some work done or, you know, collectively in our consciousness about, you know, opening up what mother and acknowledging those other mothers in our lives. What do y'all think? Yeah. For, for me, that's, that's just been super important. I think because I was the recipient of so much other mothering, um, an incredible aunt who, I mean, and they, they were doing this. I was in Virginia and my, my mother's family was in New York and my, uh, and my grandmother figured out a way to provide that for me from miles away. And this is before FaceTime and, you know, text messaging even that they were able to do that. And so that became a super important goal of mine. And so when it was my turn, when I had a nephew that needed me to mother him, I was able to pull on those examples. Um, I also believe in collectivizing everything, every, every piece of it that you can. And it doesn't mean that I'm just like, open to anybody disciplining my kids and giving me advice all the time. Yeah. But, I, but I do seek resources from a lot of different places and different people's experiences as I try to figure this thing out. And I think that like, that's the feminist in me. And I think that's what feminism tells us is that like the pressure that we put on mothers is super unfair, right? We can work 40 hour weeks and then come home and take our kids to ballet and soccer and do all of this stuff and um, still feel like we're not 
doing enough because of those earlier examples that we talked about, these representations in media. And so I think it's it's in our interest at feminine as feminists to be deconstructing this individual person having to shoulder such a burden and other mothers and that concept of other mothering and collectivity really helps helps us do that helps us do it helps take pressure off of me as a mom and off of you know just the idea of of mothers in and of themselves in and of itself yeah I think of that cringeworthy moment that many of us have had uh, as kids of accidentally calling your teacher mom you know, that is like a very quintessential moment where it's like, oh, no, I just called my teacher mom. Corey did that with her pre-K yeah. teacher. She fell. Yeah. It wasn't an accident. Yeah. She fell and hurt her knee at home and said, oh, well, <laughs> okay, so the opposites and like, not accidents. like I will, I will murder Miss Jackson. Tomorrow. Yeah, I, I think, I think, because I think for me, there were a lot of teachers who, who had, who played, I, I, I'm guessing there's plenty, there's probably a bunch of, there's probably a whole lecture on this in, in your elementary school education, you know, courses, but there, there was that was such a mothering relationship for me. Those those teachers who like who were special and who shaped who I am today certainly played a kind of mothering role um, that you know was is integral to who I am. And it, it it was a form of mothering for me. And yeah, and so like never really acknowledging it because it, it almost felt like taboo. You know, there it was like, oh God, I just called teacher mom. <laughs> it's like humiliating, or it felt humiliating at the time. Now, you know, it's not a big deal. But yeah, I I I totally agree, Chanel. That the idea that this one person has to shoulder everything, and then is this the object of your entire therapeutic experience as an adult? You know, and then um, and scrutiny and 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 critique and yeah, I don't know. I spend a, t- a lot of time thinking about um, just how it all can be toxic too. Like as much as we shoulder so much as mothers and we put mothers on a high pedestal, some of it's just not good. Yeah. And there are relationships with mothers that are problematic. Mm-hmm. And when Mother's Day rolls around, I am very cognizant of the fact of not everybody has a relationship that's good and that they want to share and talk about and Mm -hmm. expose. And that's real and a part of the whole experience that it's not always great for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I think that back to the advice question that you asked earlier, what advice we give those students. And I think one of that is as an adult to begin to maybe take some of that responsibility away from your mom to be your everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe your mom is good good at entertaining and making you laugh and, and she's funny, but she's not really great for who you go to when you're emotionally erect. Mm-hmm. Like she just isn't capable of doing that. But there's usually if we look up back to the idea of collective, Mm -hmm. you know, there's someone in our life who is there, there there tends to be someone who can meet whatever that idea, like we have this ideal mother that is all of these things, but if we break it down, right. Pull from polyamory. (laughs) Like if we, if we think about that, like a poly mothering kind of thing, then we can, we can get those things in other places and, and honor what our mothers can give us and find the rest of it elsewhere. 
Um, I think that that that's one of those adult things that we do. So that that's the advice. And I also think, you know, given our mother's context for the structures that they exist in, and I mean like patriarchal structure, you know, some of what they do to us is because of patriarchy and the role that mothers play in that. Some of it is because of classism, racism. You know, I know so many people who are damaged by very strict mothers because the mothers were afraid of what it meant to raise black children. Mm -hmm. And so they kept them locked up or they beat them really bad. Like, you know, and not to say that these things are okay, that abuse of any kind is okay, but sometimes it does help to create a background story, you know, to, to kind of get the context that we are situated. Um, we don't, we don't come into this world already as mothers. Um, and so some of those choices that people make as mothers have everything to do with the, the circumstances, you know, the cards that they were dealt in the society that we live in. So that would be my advice back to that question. That's really good advice, Chanel. I think think this is a good time to transition into our Ask the CWE question. So let's hear it. Uh, I should probably ask the CWE. Yes. So the question is, I'm very lucky to have a place to stay with my mother these past few months of quarantine. I love my mother, but she is extremely overbearing and it's only gotten worse in quarantine. I feel like I'm suffocating. How do I deal with an overbearing parent in the midst of a global pandemic? That's a good one. I mean, okay, so we don't have a ton of context. And so I think like, you you know, you may need to spend time thinking about what you mean by overbearing, like what is the nature of the overbearingness. And so we can pretend like, you know, if sometimes overbearingness is control and abuse, but other times overbearing is just like, you know, it's a lot. And now I'm in quarantine and I got away and I was in college and I had all this freedom and I had this, I had this natural boundary that was erected for me that does not exist anymore. And in fact, it is like tenfold does not exist because now I'm back in my, you know, childhood bedroom or something or whatever the couch or whatever that you're sleeping on. And so, I mean, so like, let's say I'm imagining that this is, this is like a, you know, your, your average overbearing, you know, I, I think like shoring up and taking an inventory and reflecting upon like your actual communication, it's probably like a first piece of advice that I would, um, I would, I would start to try because maybe you've never been able to you've never actually tried communicating that you don't like something because you've, you've never had to use like your adult grown up words to do it. And, and when you went to college, you know what I mean? You, again, you, you had, you had physical separation and, and so have, have you tried to communicate that like, you know, for example, like when the door is closed, can you please knock? I, I understand that this is your house and I respect that, but you know, like it could, it could be that nature of overbearing and, and maybe you've never tried because you didn't know it was an option, right? Like when you grew up in a household of somebody who's overbearing, like you just expect that someone should be able to barge into your room. And now you've gone to college and you're like, oh, like people have to knock, you know, like that, that's a respectful thing to do. You know what I mean? So have, have you like taken inventory of like, what have you actually communicated to her? That would be like my first piece of advice. Um, Chanel, Tia, what do you think? All of that you just said, like, it sounds great. However, I I also grew up in a household where 
they didn't really care. It was their house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. If they wanted to come in, yeah, they're gonna come in. Yeah. So I'm just sitting here thinking, like, how did I manage the one time I came home after being in college and managed for two and a half months? How did you, Tia? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a lot of time where I had to say, um, you know, it's no offense to you, but like, can I have some time where I'm over here doing this and you're over there doing that? Mm -hmm. Because I've been away for a while and we've gotten used to being away from each other. At least I have. And I kind of like that part of our relationship. It does not mean that I don't like you. I just like some time to me too. Mm -hmm. Which was hard for my mom to hear, but... She finally got like, it's okay for her to be away from me. Like she needs her space. I need my space. And that's okay. Yeah. You know, the thing about boundary setting is it doesn't really change much. Depend like no matter who you're talking who you're trying to set boundaries around, you're gonna have to set it and repeat it over and over and over again and stick with it, right? And sometimes people are a bit pushy and controlling and manipulative to get you to let that boundary down. But the things that I've seen work really well are when people say like, no, or, you know, this is what I'm willing to do with you. This, I'm not, I don't want to do that anymore. And you you can just, you're just going to have to like rinse and repeat, take a deep breath, do it, again, you know, over and over and over again until they get it or until you can go, or maybe they never will and they'll continue to bother you, but you stick strong around that thing that you're saying like, this can't, this can't be it anymore. Um, but I, my advice, what, what I want to say, I want to ride for the mamas a little bit. And I want to say, sometimes when y'all get older, we miss y'all. I'm thinking because my nephew just turned 16 and I love him very much. And he turned 16 yesterday and I FaceTimed him three times and I did not get a reply. So sometimes y'all get older and y'all forget about us or you feel like you're spending time with us or we're nagging, but like, we just want to be with y'all. So I would say carve out a little bit of time with your mama. Maybe if that, like you didn't, we didn't get contact. So I don't know if you are spending time with your mom and she just wants more, but sometimes it's literally just like a little bit, like, give me, give her, give her 20 minutes of like, just me and you, mom, let's talk about my day or give her a little something that you're struggling with that she can help you fix if she's the kind of mom that likes to fix things. But like, give us a little bit and it'll probably go a long way. And trust me, we did it with you Ooh. when you was all hanging on our leg. And, can, you play? can you play? Can you play Legos? Can we do? Can we do? We said we did it. We did 20 minutes. <laughs> quality over quantity. So I don't have the whole day to give you, but I will sit here and I will play Barbie with you for 20 minutes. Well, now it's your turn. So that that's what I, that's the, that's what I would say is give your mama a little bit. Find a show that both of y'all really enjoy um, or want to catch up on or do movie night on a, you know, you can tell her, look, Friday, I'm with my friends. We do our little Zoom parties, but Wednesday night, eight o'clock, how's that sound? And you'll get extra points if you go to her first. Like, mom, I miss you. Remember how you used to grease my scalp and trim my ends? Can you do that? Can, can we do that again? She loves it. That is, that so, is a pure TV moment right there, Chanel. I like <laughs> it. I like it. I like it. Very nice. Well, thank you all. 
So that wraps up our episode of the Lounge at the CWE. We're going to end with a quote from this bridge called My Back Like We Always Do. And the quote is from RG Lord. And it says, difference is that raw and powerful connection from which our personal power is forged. All right. We will see y'all soon for another episode. Take care. Bye.